Um, it is always a great privilege to be here at Dillon's Grove. I'm, I'm always just so thankful. Uh, Dillon's Grove has become, in some ways, to feel like home away from home for me. So I'm thankful getting to know so many of you so well, and you've always been so kind. And so I'm just really, really grateful to be here this morning. Thankful to Matt that he would entrust this to me. Um, and it will be a, uh, I guess, a poor imitation from Matt Broadway, but I'll do my best. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at the first 29 verses. I'm just going to read the first six for us here this morning. So the Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Um, Again, um, as as my habit and my custom, I'd like to invite you to please stand as we read from the Word of God. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today with humble hearts, hearts that are glad and grateful that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through your word. Father, we thank you that even through the foolishness of preaching that you can teach us and change us through the power of this word. So I would pray this morning, Father, that I would be neither seen nor heard, But I pray that your word would be heard clearly. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come this morning and that you would change us. That where there is death, that you would bring life. Where there is weakness, that you would bring strength. Where there is hurt, that you would bring hope and comfort. Lord, I would pray today that all I say would be faithful to you. That you would be pleased. And that this morning you would be honored through the the reading of your word through the preaching of your word, and through obedience to your word. All these things I ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, I'm sorry this morning that um, I don't have a Christmas sermon for you. I only have one of those, and it's not a very good one. <laughs> so, um, this, I guess if this is anything, it could sort of be a New Year's kind of sermon. As we think about our role and our job as believers and followers of Jesus, we... We think we understand that one of our primary responsibilities is that of evangelism, that to share the gospel as often and as with many people, as many people as we can. But we often find that as believers, I know I do anyway, at least to be a bit overwhelming, a bit frightening at times, a bit scary. And, you know, and, and it can be that. But I want you to imagine, just think about it for a minute as you think about your own life. What is the most uh, difficult group of people you could have ever imagined sharing the gospel with? I mean, what, what would they be? Um, perhaps Muslims? be pretty scary, particularly in some parts of the world. Maybe somebody who is just a militant atheist. Maybe some atheistic scientist. You know, some, you know, I know... I could ask Ron, uh, who's the most difficult group of people he could ever, ever has, has pastored, and he could probably tell me, but he would be gracious enough not to. Um, But I want you to imagine, if you would, with me for just a minute, what if your mission field, what if your congregation 
were a bunch of Nazis. Now, I don't mean skinheads. I don't mean bigoted people. I mean World War II starting, Holocaust-causing Nazis. What if that were your mission field? What were that were your congregation? And as a pastor, that's who you had to minister to. Well, this is exactly the situation an army chaplain named Henry Garricky found himself in at the end of World War II. Garricky was a Lutheran minister. He had enlisted in the army at the age of 50. His two oldest sons had already been um, uh, battle-tested. They, they had served in the military almost the entire war. At 50, he, was, uh, he, he enlisted, and he went to a hospital outside of London where he ministered to dying and wounded GIs. Now, at the war's end, though, when the other soldiers were going home, uh, Garricky was recruited for the most difficult assignment, the most difficult ministry experience of his life. And that was ministering to the 21 Nazi leaders who were awaiting trial at Nuremberg. He wasn't getting just some Nazis. He was getting the Nazis. He was getting the guys that were in charge of everything, the ones who were left alive. At Nuremberg, it was going to be the victorious allies who would be judging the crimes of these men. But it would fall to a Lutheran minister from Missouri to try to convince these men that what they really needed to be afraid of was not man's justice, but that it would be there was God's justice that they should really fear. Part of what motivated him to take the assignment were the words of a 19th century hymn that had become Garricky's motto and a prayer that he often prayed for himself. And it goes like this. It's in our hymnals. And it says, Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And I may nobly do my part to win that soul for thee. In the end, Henry Garricky would have the opportunity to share the gospel in an unlikely time and an unlikely place among unlikely people. And we're going to look this morning at what I think for most of us is probably a pretty familiar story from the ministry and the life of Jesus. But I want us to see two things this morning, and it's really for kind of two different groups of people. If you are here this morning and you have never trusted or surrendered Jesus to Jesus as your Savior, then I want you to understand this morning that there is no one, nowhere, at any time that is beyond His love and His grace and His mercy and His salvation. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I want to encourage us and help us to understand just like Jesus shows us here that often the greatest times, the most fruitful times for evangelism, the most fruitful times to share the gospel are at the unlikeliest times and the unlikeliest places among the most unlikely of people. So... Again, let's, let's go back to the beginning of the Gospel of John here. And we're going to begin by seeing that opportunities are found at the most unlikely of times. It says here in verse 3 that Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And that he had, pa- had to pass to Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar. <clears throat> excuse me. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So John tells us here that Jesus was traveling from Jer- Jerusalem to Galilee. The most direct path was through Samaria. And so that's where he was going. And traveling that day was not easy. They did not have cars. They did not have vehicles. Uh, they barely had roads. 
I mean, they were just kind of dirt paths that were worn, and it was weird. You know, it was it was just bone jarring work because you had to walk everywhere, you had to carry everything, and it was really dangerous. You were always kind of in danger from somebody robbing you, or or falling over from heat stroke, or all these different things. And so, John paints a picture for us here of Jesus arriving at this well and being extremely tired from this rigorous journey. He was exhausted. Um, the, the idea, the word there carries with the, the idea of a man who has toiled excessively. I try to avoid that at all possible, if at all possible, toiling excessively. But I have occasionally, and if you've ever done that, you know how tired you are. I mean, you know, just to be tired in your bones. And that's the idea here, this graphic picture of who Jesus was and how he was, what he was like when he arrived there at the well, that he was just completely spent and completely exhausted. And we can kind of infer from the text that he was also likely thirsty and hungry. Well, why? Because he sent his disciples to get food. And then he asked this woman at the well for a drink. And to top it all off, not only was he exhausted, not only was he thirsty, not only was he hungry, it was the hottest part of the day. John tells us this occurred at the sixth hour, which is noon. Sun directly overhead, beaten down. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. If I were Jesus in that situation, I'd be looking for three things. Something to drink, a snack, and a nap. I would not be looking for witnessing opportunities. But yet, this is what we see Jesus doing. Fortunately, Jesus was not me. He didn't allow his weariness. He didn't allow his own personal discomfort and his own personal convenience to get in the way of an opportunity to share the gospel at a very fruitful time. Henry Garricky was given an opportunity to, to, to share the gospel and to minister in a very inconvenient time as well. Remember, the war was over and he was ready to go home when this call came through. He was given the option. This was not a mandatory assignment. He said, they said, Henry, we'd like you to do this, but you don't have to. We understand if you say no. But he did accept the assignment, even though he had not seen his wife and his youngest son for more than two years. And before the ordeal and the trials at Nuremberg were over, it would be another year before he would see them. But he believed it was his duty as a Christian minister to bring redemption to these souls. To save as many Nazis as he could before their executions. And that everybody knew that was what was at the end of the trials. They knew somebody was going to hang. Maybe all of them. And so he knew he had a limited amount of time to minister to these men. So he ministered to them with the fervency and the passion of a, of a man running to warn people to get out of a burning building. Because he understood the imminence of their demise. And that should be a reminder to us that all oh, that evangelism is pressing work. Indeed, it's the most important work that we can ever do. And we, it should never be treated casually. It should never be postponed when there is opportunity. Because we need to understand, now could be the day of salvation for someone. Now could be the day, the opportunity for someone, the only opportunity perhaps, or the final opportunity for someone to hear the message of the gospel. And so we've got to be willing to, like Jesus, put aside our personal convenience, our personal expectations, our personal comfort, and to share the gospel with that same sort of urgency, that same sort of passion, that same sort of burning intensity. Opportunities to share the gospel may occur at the most inconvenient and unlikely of times. 
But these, again, may be the only times that someone has to hear the gospel. Or it may be the time for someone to hear the gospel. We don't know. Maybe just like this woman at the well, when she heard the gospel this time, the first time, the only time, she found salvation. Therefore, we must be ready in season and out of season. If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't trusted in him, I want to tell you there's still time. Even in the midst of the worst of times, no matter how bad the times are in your life right now, Jesus can come. He can save you. He can rescue you. Do not believe a lie that says it is too late for you to be changed. It is too late for you to be saved. So opportunities can come at the most unlikely of times, but we see also that they can occur in the most unlikely of places. Again, to go back to verse 5, it says, He says, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Opportunities for evangelism are often found in unlikely places. Listen, a well on the outskirts of a village was certainly not the setting an average evangelist would choose. But by using this, this setting, Jesus demonstrates to us that any place, any time, is a time and a place for evangelism. Look, Jesus shouldn't have been preaching there. Jesus need better ha- need, you know, he needed better handlers. He needed better people booking him and being in charge of his schedule. Because this was a lousy little town on the backside of nowhere. Jesus should have been in the big cities. He should have been doing evangelism in, in the Jerusalem or Galilee, someplace bigger than where he was now. This was nowhere. There weren't even any crowds here. He should have been import, re, preaching to the religious and the thought leaders of his day, to the political leaders of his day. He should have been preaching somewhere important. But here he was in this small town in the middle of nowhere. And this would have been an extremely hard place to minister. The, the, name, the name of this town was Sychar, which meant either drunken town or lying town. What does that tell you about the place? How would you like to live in drunken town? Imagine trying to share the gospel on the Vegas Strip. Or imagine trying to share the gospel on Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras. This is where he was. This is what was happening. This is the kind of place. This is an incredibly hard place. And Jesus wasn't even preaching in town. He was out in the outskirts of town by a well at noon when nobody would be there. This does not seem like a good um, plan for an evangelistic crusade. And yet it would be here, in the hottest part of the day, in the middle of nowhere, that Jesus would begin a revival in this community. Henry Garricky was also ministering in a bad place full of bad people. A very unlikely place to share the gospel. But his view was that God was God everywhere. That God's domain was all of creation. That God's domain was in Nuremberg among the Nazis just as much as it was anywhere else. And he had to put aside some, some pride. And he had to, this, he had to make himself, and he, he prayed this prayer one time, that God would preserve him from all pride and from any prejudice against those whose spiritual care had been committed to his charge. 
And it was in this spirit of humility that he came and he ministered to these men in the shadows of the gallows. So two, we must remember that the mission field begins wherever we are. There are souls right around us that need saving. There are people who need Christ all around us and all these different opportunities. And we, you know, whether it's an opportunity at at work with the person you work beside on the assembly line or in the shop or, or the person in the cubicle next door to you or the person at the dry cleaners or at the gas station or at the restaurant or your next door neighbor or a football game or a softball game or whatever. There are places, and these are all possible opportunities, rich opportunities. And we, and we sometimes think, oh, it's not appropriate to talk about the gospel here. It's out of place. Jesus is helping us to understand here that every place is a place to talk about the gospel if we're given the opportunity. And we need to remember that. And I think sometimes we look at places and we think about this place where Jesus was, this town. Or we think about Las Vegas or the most wretched group of people you can think of in Washington, D.C. Right? We think Washington, D.C. is beyond hope. Right? We think politicians are all corrupt and they're no, you know, that we, they're just beyond the pale. It, Jesus wants us to understand no one, no place is beyond his reach. No place is beyond his grasp. You know, and I want to tell you folks, and this is going to hurt a little bit, but I want you to understand, sometimes we think the deadest, the hardest, the worst hardened sinners and the nastiest people are out there in a place like Sychar, Las Vegas, or Washington, D.C., or wherever. But I'm going to be honest with you. The truth of the matter is, sometimes the hardest, the deadest, the worst people are right here. Sitting in pews in churches like this all over everywhere. People have been in those pews their whole lives. They're just as dead and just as hard and just as far away from Jesus as people in a place like Las Vegas or Sackcar. So we need to understand that every place is a place to share the gospel. Every place is the mission field. No matter how unlikely, no matter how bad it appears from our perspective, the important thing to remember is we cannot witness to people where they are not. We have to go to them. We have to reach out. We have to make the effort. You know, it's not very often that we're just going to be sitting there minding our own business and somebody's going to walk up to us and go, hey, can you share the gospel with me? It's not going to happen that often. Probably not ever. We're going to have to be intentional. We're going to have to be uh, proactive about it. But Jesus says, always be looking for those opportunities. That's what he was doing. Again, at this very unlikely place. And I want you to understand that no matter who you are, there's no place that you have arrived in your life physically or spiritually that is so bad that Jesus can't deliver you from it. That there is nothing that he, there's no place you can be that he can't get to you. There is no place so bad that he won't come to you. No matter where you are, he will deliver you from the deepest and darkest and worst places imaginable. You are never, ever beyond a saving grip. So opportunities to share the gospel are found at the unlikeliest of times. They're found in the unlikeliest of places. And then in verses 16 and 19, I want us to see that they are found among the most unlikely of people. In verse 16, Jesus says, Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Woman, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I always, get, I always get kind of tickled at that, actually, when I read it, because Jesus is having this conversation with this woman. And this woman, I think she's, um, just through the years, she has developed this uh, a hardness, probably a bit of a bravado, a bit of a, kind of a, a caustic kind of nature about her. And so she's, she's trying to keep up with Jesus and not be intimidated by him. And then he throws this on her, that... Not only do you not have a husband, you've had five husbands, and the one you got now, not even married to him. And her response says, "Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet." Yeah, you think? I mean, and and so the, and this woman illustrates to us this this concept so perfectly that nobody is beyond the grasp of the gospel. Nobody is beyond Jesus' power to save. She was a hardened sinner living in sin, hardened to everything. And she would seem incredibly unlikely to respond to the gospel. I mean, I, I was trying to think of somebody in sort of in the context in which we live. But I mean, try, you know, imagine trying to, uh, to share the gospel with, uh, with, a, with a prostitute or, uh, or a drug addict. You know, somebody who's just, just burnt up on heroin or crystal meth or something like that. I mean, this kind of person, this is how hard she was. But in choosing this woman uh, to to share the gospel with and to save, he models for us the example that we should always avoid personal pride and bias in sharing the gospel. But that we should share it with everybody regardless. Because this was not the sort of woman you wanted to be seen with. But yet, this didn't deter his evangelism. I want us to consider uh, just a couple minutes who she was. First off, this woman we can tell from this, she was an outcast among outcasts. First, she was a Samaritan. Jesus was a Jew. Jews viewed Samaritans, they, they did not like each other, Jews and Samaritans. And, and, and Jews viewed uh, Samaritans as religious half-breeds, as apostates, as somebody who had come in and, and, and had corrupted the true religion of Israel. And, and had um, moved people to worship idols and chase after false gods. So she was a Samaritan. But the second strike she had against her, she was also a woman. Women were greatly marginalized in that culture. They were little more than property. You know, women couldn't even be, co- be witnesses in court in this day. I want you to notice something here. Um, if you skip down with me to uh, verse 27... I just want to read this. It says, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. Now, I want you to notice what that says there. What did they marvel at? They didn't marvel that he was talking to that kind of woman. They didn't marvel that he was talking to a woman like that. They marveled that he was talking to a woman at all. They marveled that he was talking to a woman. There was even a, a, a rabbinic tradition, and Jesus would have been considered a rabbi, that a rabbi would not speak to a woman in public, not even his own wife. So this was strike two. She was a Samaritan. She was a woman. But then third strike, she's out. 
This was a woman who was shunned by her own wretched people. This was evidenced by the fact that when she came to draw water, nobody goes to get water at noon because it's hot. You don't go out in the heat in the desert. That's just foolishness. The reason she was out there then is because nobody else would be out there. She didn't have to take the abuse and the cat calls and all these different things. She didn't have to hear it. So she would go out there during this time that she could be alone, get her water in peace and go back. Now, we can tell this was not the, the most pure lady that had ever lived. Um, you got to figure a lot of there were a lot of at least angry women in that town with her. We can be certain there were at least five that were very angry with her. Right. Because, you know, she had she had been around. And yet this woman who openly confessed this adultery and her immorality. Among this person, this most unlikely of person, Jesus uses this woman to begin a revival in Samaria. It's pretty amazing. He didn't go find the mayor and say, that's what we do, right? We go, like, this is always, um, work with a number of years ago and would work with youth a little bit. And, and then you go to these youth conferences and this is what they would tell you. They would say, here's what you need to do. You go find the captain of the football team. You go find the head cheerleader. You win them to Christ and everybody else will follow. Right? And that's how we think. We get the good, the popular, the beautiful. We get those people and all the other people will follow them. That's not exactly what Jesus did, was it? No, he went and found this person that was pretty nasty, pretty dirty. Henry Garricky faced a similar situation to his personal pride and bias. When he was asked to accept about the assignment at Nuremberg, he asked if he could have time to pray about it and consider it. I mean, he was terrified by the prospect of, of being even in the physical presence of these men. These men who had tried to take over the world. I mean, what, what would he do? Would he have to shake their hands? Could he shake their hands? Um, he imagined that just feeling their breath and hearing their voices would be sickening. How could you comfort men who had caused so much pain, so much heartache, so much death? How could he minister to leaders of a movement that had taken tens of millions of lives? In fact, there was one man there in Nuremberg whom he was charged with caring with who was personally responsible. They could tie him to the death of one and a half million people. Let that sink in for just a second. One man responsible, personally responsible for the death of 1.5 million people. This was one of the men Henry Garricky was charged with caring for, ministering to, and sharing the gospel with and trying to win to Christ. How could you form a spiritual bond with, a men, with men like that? How could you minister to people like that? But you know, the first he walked in the room, the first one. You know what the first thing Henry Garricky did when he walked in the room to meet the, meet the first Nazi leader? He stuck out his hand. And he shook his hand. And that was an act so loathsome to everybody else in, in the Allied command that he was ridiculed. He was harshly criticized for that, for even shaking their hand. And it was not an easy gesture for him to make. It did not mean that he was un. un concerned with their crimes but he wrote this later he said he did that in order that the gospel be not hindered 
by any wrong approach that I may make. I knew I could never win any of them to my way of thinking unless they first liked me. You know, the thing is, folks, we don't mind sharing the gospel with people that are like us, do we? We like, in fact, we like people like us. And in the church, let me tell you, there is nothing churches like more. I'll tell you what the holy grail of church growth is. Young families with children. Intact families, mother and father, preferably gainfully employed with kids. The more kids, the better. Right? Like Jeff and Rhonda Walsh, gold mine for church growth. <laughs> right? And, and that's what we want. We want people like that. But what about the drug addicts? What about convicted felons? What about the mentally ill? What about homosexuals? What about pedophiles? What about these people who need the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus? That list could go on and on, but how do we reach out to the worst and the seemingly most hopeless among us? Because we need to understand something. And you, we all need to understand this. This is hard for us because we, we like gathering and, and with people like ourselves. But we need to understand if we are going to minister the way that Jesus ministered, we will attract the kinds of people Jesus attracted. And he did not attract the good and the beautiful. He attracted the people that were hurt. The people that were severely damaged. And so we need to remember a few things. First, we need to remember that every person is a person made in the image of God. And every person is a person for whom Christ died. Everyone has worth. Everyone has value. Regardless of how wretched we might view him or her to be. Regardless of how far down the road of darkness they've gone. We must never look down on someone. We must never marginalize them. We must never insult them. Henry Garricky believed that God loved all human beings, even the perpetrators, even these Nazis. He believed God loved them and that Christ died for them. Second, we, we must avoid personal pride in our evangelism. We must engage everyone with grace and respect. Folks, I'm going to be honest. We don't do that very well sometimes. We really don't. We, we can get on our high horse and we can get self-righteous in just in, in a split second. But I got news for you. You're no prize yourself. I'm no prize myself. We are foul sinners in the sight of God, each and every one of us. Now, my sin and your sin might not look like their sin. But it's no different in the end of the day. It is rebellion against God. It is something that has made us his enemies and separated us from him and, and causes us to face his judgment. And we were at all one time aliens and, and sinners and far from God. And again, that sin, that alienation may have looked a little different, but it was still separation nonetheless. You know, I was, the, the hymns this morning were interesting. Um, they were both written by Charles Wesley which I noticed. And the reason I noticed that is because Wesley used the same phrase in both of those hymns. There's one phrase that he used in both those hymns that I thought was really helpful to this. And um, the phrase was this. He says, His blood can make the foulest clean. That was in both those hymns this morning. And I thought, man, Charles Wesley got it. He knew it. He understood it. Because you know who Charles Wesley was singing about there, who he was writing about? He was writing about himself. 
He understood that the gospel, the blood of Jesus, makes the foulest, the worst people clean, even people as foul as me. That's what Charles Wesley understood, and that's what we need to understand. And finally, this last hope, and, and I, you know, I don't, I know some of you, I don't know all of you that well, and, but, and I don't know who you have in your life, but I want to encourage you today that never, ever give up on anyone. There's never anyone so far gone that they can't be claimed by the grace of Jesus. There's never a sin so great that Christ cannot forgive it. There is never anyone so hard that God cannot break that shell and save them. We must never write anyone off as hopeless. As long as they have breath, they have hope. Jesus shows us that here so clearly with this woman. And again, if you've not trusted in Christ, I want you to know for certain that you are not without hope. That Jesus died for you and in his sacrifice, no matter what you've done, is sufficient to cover your sins and to bring you salvation and eternal life. In verse 21, Jesus says, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. Jesus is likely referring to a number of things here, but I believe ultimately what he is referring to is that day, that great and glorious day, the day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our blessed hope. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That day when Jesus will return and he will not return as a meek servant, but he will return as king and Lord and judge of all people and all things. See, it is this day that evangelism prepares us for. Henry Garricky, in the end, was used to prepare several of his Nazi congregation for that day. Um, I believe it was, I believe 12 of the 21 defendants were, were ultimately hanged. And in his final monthly report, Garricky said that he believed that four of them had died as penitent sinners, trusting God's mercy for forgiveness. They believed in Jesus who shed his blood for their sins. He wrote that in his final report. Understand that. One day when Jesus comes back and we are all raised from the grave, we will be there with him. All us nice people. But guess what? There will also be four Nazis there. Men who are responsible for millions of lives. That is how great the grace of Jesus is. Wilhelm Keitel, one of the men who was hanged and he was um, a field marshal. In the Nazi regime, and if I'm, he, he wrote this about his life. Again, this is a man who was responsible for millions of deaths, a hardened warrior, a Nazi of the of the nth degree. And yet, his final moments; these were his final moments. Garricky wrote this. He says, "On his knees and under deep emotional stress, Keitel received the body and blood of our Savior." With tears in his voice, he said, You have helped me much more than you know. May Christ, my Savior, stand by me all the way. I shall need him so much. 
Jesus can save Nazis. And he did. Who are we to say you do not deserve to hear the gospel or you are too far gone to hear the gospel? It's, it's a waste of time to share the gospel with that person in that place or at that time. That is arrogance and self-righteousness to put ourselves in the place of God. We do not know who he will choose to save, when he will choose to save, or how he will choose to save them. Our job is simply to be faithful to deliver the message with grace and mercy, compassion and love. There's a great phrase at the end of this, at the end of this story. Um, it's something I had missed uh, a, a lot as I read this, but it speaks volumes when it talks about this woman, this woman who was terrible that Jesus so beautifully saved. You see, she came there looking for water, but what she found was something different. I want you to see in verse 28. It says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town. Why did she go to the well? To get water. She went to draw water in a man-made vessel. Water that would leave her to thirst again. But you see, she went there to that well, and she didn't drink from that well, but she drank from a fountain. She drank from a fountain of living water. Of living water from which once she would drink, she would never thirst again. And when she drank from that fountain, that water began to flow up in her and flow out of her. And all she could do was go and tell people, come see this man who told me all that I ever did. Jesus seized an opportunity for evangelism at an unlikely time in an incredibly unlikely place and an amazingly and remarkably unlikely person. He gave that person eternal life and then completely as we continue to read this story, what we will see is she was just the beginning of this great and mighty harvest for the kingdom of God. He began it in this person, this unlikely person. So this morning, I just want to, again, encourage you, if you've never believed, if you've never trusted in Jesus' saving work on your behalf, please know today that you are not unsavable. You are not past redemption. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so powerful that even Nazi perpetrators, men who cause the Holocaust, can find forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. And that same mercy and grace and forgiveness that was, is there for them is there for you. For the rest of us, for those of us who have trusted and have believed, I want to just leave us this morning with a prayer of Henry Garricky. I shared you the prayer with you a little bit earlier in the sermon, but towards the end of his life, he, he added a new line to that prayer as a, a line I actually borrowed from Corey Tin Boom, if you're familiar with her. And so as we close today, as we close, as we go into this new year, I pray this would pray this for myself, I pray this for you, and I pray that we would pray it always and constantly, and it is this. Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And I may do may nobly do my part to win that soul for thee. And when I come to the beautiful city. And the saved all around me appear. I want to hear somebody tell me. It was you who invited me here.
Let's pray. Father, we just praise you and thank you today for the glorious and wonderful truth of the gospel. It is overwhelming to us. It is, it is beyond our comprehension in so many ways that your grace is so deep and, and wide and, and marvelous. And, and the sacrifice of Jesus so wonderfully sufficient that there is no one, no matter what we might have done, that is beyond that, your salvation and your forgiveness. Lord, it is a wonderful truth. And I pray today that if there's anyone who here, here who has not trusted in that, that they would. That they would, that they would, you would bring conviction, that they would repent, and that they would trust in Jesus and all that he's done on their behalf. And find salvation and eternal life. But for the rest of us, Lord, for those of us who have trusted, forgive us. Forgive us for being arrogant and proud and, and thinking we're t- wise and, and re- just relying on our own strength and ability and, and being cowards sometimes and being just negligent with this wonderful, beautiful gospel. Lord, move us and change us and compel us. Let us be like Jeremiah, that you light a fire in us that we cannot help but speak the truth of the gospel. And Father, help us to always be aware, be sensitive to your spirit, that no matter the time, no matter the place, no matter the person, that we would gladly and gloriously and graciously share the gospel. That all might hear, and that many might believe. To their benefit, to your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.